Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula, KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. We've got a couple of great interviews for you this month, so let's jump right in to Beer News. Tickets are now on sale for the 2022 Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival, which will be held on Saturday, August 13th at the Soldatna Regional Sports Complex. Live music will be provided by Zero Miles to Empty and the Young Dubliners. General admission is from 6 to 9 p.m. and costs $50. The connoisseur session is from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. and includes unlimited samples during that hour. A ticket to both sessions costs $75. Tickets are available at www.kenaibeerfest.com. The second annual Alaska Craft Brew Festival Summer Edition will be held on Saturday, August 27th in Anchorage at the Delaney Park Strip. The fest will feature live music, food trucks, and over 40 breweries. The day session is from 12 to 3 p.m., while the night session is from 6 to 9 p.m. Turnagain Brewing of Anchorage has been named the winner of Made in Alaska's 2021 Manufacturer of the Year Award. Alaska's state alcohol regulator is declining to stop distilleries from selling kegs of premixed cocktails despite a warning by federal regulators who have concluded that the process is illegal. In early July, the Alaska Alcohol Control Board rescinded an advisory notice that had cautioned distilleries against selling kegs to bars and other places with alcohol licenses. The board also voted unanimously to create a working group to consider the topic further. At issue is the sale of kegs of pre-mixed cocktails to bars and restaurants across Alaska. This appears to be in conflict with the U.S. Treasury Department's standards of fill regulations, which determine what size of container alcohol may be sold in. Alaska has no such state rules. In February, the Treasury Department released a report saying in part that those regulations are no longer necessary to ensure tax compliance and a rulemaking process is now underway that could eliminate the idea of regulated container sizes in favor of a minimum size and a maximum size. Even if adopted, the current wording of that proposal appears to fall short of allowing kegs. However, at least for now, the Alcohol Control Board has decided that if the federal government wants such a rule to be enforced, it will have to do it. 
Speaking of the feds, did you know that the United States Postal Service is not allowed to ship alcohol? Because of archaic laws, the USPS cannot deliver your favorite brew to your home, even in states where it's legal for private carriers to do so. Key members of Congress, alcohol beverage producers, and postal unions are trying to fix this. In 2021, legislatures introduced the USPS Shipping Equity Act, which would allow the U.S. Postal Service to mail beverage alcohol products directly from licensed producers, including breweries, distilleries, wineries, and cideries, to legal drinking age customers in states that allow direct-to-consumer alcohol shipping. This legislation would have a far-reaching effect on craft breweries. The Brewers Association has launched a campaign asking craft beer lovers to write to their congressional delegation in support. 49th State Brewing will be holding Oktoberfest 2022 on August 12th and 13th at its location in Healy. This Bavarian-themed beer fest with an Alaskan twist will feature the tunes of H3 Hawaii Reggae Band, Matt Lewis and the Medicine, DJ Mancat, The Lightning Will, Daryl Gleason Music, and Alaska Blaskapel, along with more German food specials, special beer releases, games, and much more. Tickets start at $28 and are available online. Naptown Brewing Company, the new craft brewery working to open in Sterling, has brewed its first test batch. The brewery plans to be open to the public this fall. I hope to have Jake Walgenbach, one of the owners, on this program in the near future for an interview. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we've got an interview with Dana Walkowitz of King Street Brewing in Anchorage. Calling all KDLL listeners. Would you like to have a direct voice into what you hear on the air? KDLL is seeking members for its Community Advisory Board. The CAB meets quarterly to gather public input and evaluate how well KDLL programming meets the needs of the community. If this gets your ring of approval, contact Jenny at KDLL at info at kdll.org or 283-8433. Triumvirate Theater is at Soldatna's Wednesday Market all summer long. Triumvirate has a scale model of the new theater facility they're planning in Kenai, as well as information about upcoming shows and other initiatives. The Soldatna Wednesday Market runs from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. through August in Soldatna Creek Park. Dana Walukowitz, one of the owners-slash-founders of King Street Brewing in Anchorage. Dana, how are you doing today? Hi, pretty good. Thanks for having me, Bill. Oh, thanks for being on. Really appreciate it. So, what's uh, new out at King Street? Uh, I understand you guys are, um, are getting or have or soon will have a kitchen open? Uh, that is true. The rumors are true. We've... Um I've been working probably the last six months um, building out a kitchen here at the brewery. Um, a little, a little something for us. Um, we're taking it slow at first. Uh, Going to start to have a little bit of uh, some pizzas here, then kind of expand to a little bit lighter of a menu, some hot sandwiches and salads and stuff like that. Um, 
It's been something that's been our on our radar for several years. We've just been always really focused on the beer and didn't want to lose our focus there. So, um, but after a couple of years of being in our new facility, we figured, well, now might be the uh, great time to go ahead and, and kick it off. Um, a lot of people have been asking for it, and so we've been uh, been working on that. You guys going to be open for lunch and dinner? Just dinner? Just lunch? Well, like like most breweries, uh, we have to close at eight o'clock, and uh, we generally are open from two p.m. in the afternoon until eight. Um, on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, we are open at noon. So, but we're going to take it slow. Um, we're going to follow those hours, and as we get things down and our our people in place, we'll we'll open it up to. Um, probably an earlier crowd, um, maybe as early as like 11 or so for a lunch crowd. Um, like many of the, you know, restaurants in, in the hospitality industry today, it's real hard to, you know, find staff and, and, uh, fill the ranks. And so we're, we're kind of taking it slow. We don't want to jump in. We're not going to have this, um, major grand opening. We'll, we'll start, uh, start small and then kind of grow into the hours and, and grow into the menu as, as, uh, as people kind of tell us what they want. <laughs> so uh, what's your uh, time frame? you're thinking? We're not open yet. Um, and in fact, um, we've got all of our permits in place, food permits um, and closing out our construction permits, all of our equipment's in place right now. It's just a matter of getting some people trained up, hired and trained up and, and, uh, and getting it down. So, we're probably looking at it at, at August timeframe, uh, maybe mid August for, um, you know, going full swing with this. Again, it's summertime. A lot of people are busy fishing and all that. So I'm kind of, uh, <laughs> I yeah. certainly want to get out there as well. So, but I'm figuring we're probably about two weeks out. Well, since you mentioned hours, let's talk SB9. Now that it's finally passed, what do you think about it, and uh, what uh, what plans do you have to try and take advantage of it? Well, from King Street's perspective, um, you know, we, we've always just been kind of focused on, as a as a as brewery, and liked that kind of a place that we're in. Um, you know, we talked just about the having the kitchen and uh, in place, and you know, that's kind of. Um, very um, kind of consequential to the fact that we had just had finished. Um, we were going to do the kitchen anyway, regardless of whether or not SB9 had passed. Um, as many people um, know that now that breweries can actually have the opportunity to get a beer and wine license, which is kind of funny because we already have a brewery license and a winery license, but our, our hours are limited. Um, so the, the, the potential of having the kitchen um, could open us up to pop possibilities for um, getting the beer and wine license. And what that primarily let us do is to stay open a little bit later. Um, like I mentioned, we close at 8 o'clock. Um, it would probably be nice to stay open until about 10 or so, uh, especially in the summertime. I mean, we Alaskans, we love to, um, you know, stay out and enjoy the, the nice weather when we have it. And we have a beautiful deck at the brewery. And so many people are disappointed when they know that they have to, you know, basically have their last beer at 8 o'clock and, and uh, finish it up and then hit the door. Um, 
um, you know, with when it's a nice day out there, people don't mind just hanging out and enjoying a beer for um, until nine or ten o'clock at night on that deck, and uh, we certainly have the the view for it. So that that's one potential. Of course, with SB nine, a lot of those changes don't come into effect until January of two thousand twenty four. So there'll be there'll be some time for us to kind of figure things out and, and see what we want to do. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, uh, breweries are you know. Uh, that have kitchens are seriously considering that whole let's go with a restaurant eating place license instead of operating under the tap room rules just you know for the reason you said plus the idea that oh yeah now we could bring in guest beers or wine or you know various other things you know obviously you guys are already a winery but for people that aren't wineries you know to be able to bring in and have wine on offer for people who don't like beer and um, you know, that sort of thing give, give you a lot more flexibility. So I got a, I got a sneaking suspicion. We're going to see a lot of breweries, you know, if, if they have a kitchen in their tap room, that's the road they're going to go down. I, I think that's uh, that's certainly a, a big possibility. And I'm, I'm looking forward to just what from the consumer's perspective of what, uh, you know, the establishments can do here in Alaska. Now, I mean, you've seen a lot of this in lower 48 people have, um, you know, a, a very um, hybrid business model in Lower 48. They might have, um, you know, a, a brewery plus a tape, uh, tasting room or a um, big, um, you know, restaurant attached to it. If you've ever been down to Stone Brewing down in Escondido, they have a, yes, a massive, yeah. <laughs> massive restaurant out there that spills out into, you know, open spaces outside. And it's quite quite the tourist destination, too. Um so, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what um, our other breweries can do in the state. And, and it doesn't have to be just a, you know, restaurant type. I, I know a, a, a lot of breweries over the last couple of years have just kind of thrown up their hands and said, you know, with all these regulations, you know, I can't really do what my customers want me to do. And so they've gone ahead and got uh, a BDL license, which is the beverage dispensary license. Um, and of course, that allows them to do pretty much anything in terms of, you know, um, beer, wine, hard liquor um, and stay open later and, you know, host uh, music venues and such like and stuff like that. So, you know, um, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for uh, customers out there to kind of find, you know, something they like. And, and I think it's going to be great, great for the industry. So what else have you guys got uh, coming down the pike? Any uh, interesting uh, new releases or festivals you're going to be at? Well, we do generally uh, follow the, the um, festivals that the Guild sponsors and works with. I know that there's um, the Talkeetna uh, Festival coming up in, in mid-September. And then there's also, I think it's Capital City Brew Fest, uh, late September. You, you, just, um, you, you skipped over the biggest and the best one, which is the Kenai Peninsula Festival in August. So you guys, uh, you're going to be down true. here for that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we generally do. Um, yeah, you know, I thought so. Uh, we, we try to hit all of them, especially the ones on the road system. It gets a little bit hard when you get down to like Juneau and these places, but we do our best. Um, I know that we've been to, for example, the Haynes one and in that's in uh, late may every year except for this last year because one of our our brewers car broke down on the way down there <laughs> but uh, um, we try to make it to all of them um, 
then also, you know, we we're also penciling in our own Oktoberfest ce- uh, celebration. Um, I don't have a firm date on it, but it's looking like it's going to be October first. We're trying to pencil it in between all the other uh, brew fests out there, and uh, that's always a fun one for us. Um, we do a lot of different um, German and inspired beers. You know, we have our Bavarian style Hefeweizen. Um, our Czech style Pilsner, which obviously is like a German cousin to um, the Pilsners in Germany. This year, we're going to again do our Oktoberfest, which is a, a crowd favorite. Everybody looks forward to that one every year. Currently on draft right now, we've got a German Hellas light lager, which is spectacular. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of our Oktoberfest is a chance for us to kind of just shine and, and um, promote all those different beers and, and, uh, with COVID and all we've can't, we've canceled our, our Oktoberfest celebration at the brewery, um, for the last two years. And so we're really looking forward to it. And especially with the kitchen open now, we'll be able to accommodate a lot of people. We usually do a nice menu of, of brats and, or, and that's uh, what I was going to say. You're going to try, try it out the Bavarian uh, recipes. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, we've got, um, we've got brats and, and, and sauerkraut and reindeer sausage. And, um, we make up a ton of food and it's always, always a great time. My, my wife, who's uh, from central Europe as well, she makes a apple strudel that's to die for. (laughs) So, you know, everybody comes out, has a great time and it's something we've looked forward to. Um, but, and we so wanted to do it the last couple of years, but just couldn't, you know, keep the public health healthy and safe. So, uh, this year, so uh, October 1st, huh? For that one, you think? Yeah. Yeah. That's our, our tentative date right now. I just want to make sure all the other festivals dates don't move around. Um, we try to get it in on a, on a nice Saturday there late September, early October. So, but October 1st sounds like a, like it's going to be a good date. Sounds good. I'm going to put it on my calendar and try to make it up there. So what about uh, uh, beer releases? You got anything uh, interesting coming out here in the uh, near future that people should keep an eye out for? Well, definitely our Oktoberfest is going to be our next one coming up. Um, That one's, of course, the crowd favorite. We've been doing that. Um, We did that kind of as a one-off, gosh, 10 years ago. And and every year people want it back. So we've been doing, I, I think now, 10 years straight. Um, so and I don't know a, how we did. Is that a, like a Marzen style, a, a classic Oktoberfest? It is classic yeah. Oktoberfest. We use all German malts, German yeasts, German hops, all for it. And it's, it just comes out spectacular. And I, I don't know how we do it, but every year it seems to get better. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, um, no, it, it's, it's a fun favorite. Um, and then, you know, as we head into the wintertime, we'll be doing our winter warmer again. We didn't do that last year, so this year we're looking forward to it. the winter warmer. Our style is a um, it, it's uh, like a Belgian dark strong, somewhere between a Belgian double and a dark strong. It's not as high ABV as a dark strong, um, but then we've um, we hit it with a, just a tiny little bit of cinnamon allspice in the background. You wouldn't be able to pin it down unless I told you. It's all there just to kind of give it depth of flavor. And then we also do a, uh, a secondary fermentation with uh, cherries on it. And mm. it's just so smooth and so nice. 
we will hopefully we'll have the barrels this year too to um barrel age some of it um and uh we've done it in bourbon and other whiskey um, barrels as well for just kind of depth of flavor of course that will take an extra six months for that um to come out but uh that's it's as as well as a as a fan favorite. And, um, unfortunately, we didn't do it last year, so we're kind of looking forward to that one this year. <laughs> cool. You think you'll have it ready for the January festival, or is it going to have to be pushed oh, right I, on that? I, uh, we should. We should. We generally have. Of course, the beer tells you when it's ready, mm-hmm. but uh, um, we generally release that one in mid November. So. Okay. Um, then the barrel age version would probably be a, a few months after that. And, and really that kind of just depends on your barrels. As you know, it's like you could put, you know, beer into wood and, and, um, you know, it might be six months and you think it still needs time. And then the next month that it, it's perfect. <laughs> so it's, it, it, barrel aging is, is amazing because I don't know if you got a chance to try our 10th anniversary, um, I did. um beyond I 10. Did. Yeah. yeah. Both of them, both versions. Oh gosh, man! And and the you know interesting thing with that one is that you know we did two different types of barrels. We did a Spanish sherry barrel, and then we did a cognac barrel, French cognac. And our intention intention was to you know age them each each of those barrels and then blend them back because we really like to kind of develop depth of flavor based on with um varying you know barrels and and characteristics but when we were tasting each of those barrels um we were just blown away by the absolute difference in flavor that um the two provided in particular the spanish sherry gave gave it almost a kind of nutty and smoky kind of flavor to the to the beer and uh so we had to change our plans right, you know, midstream there and basically said, okay, hold on. We're not going to mix these two. We're going to bottle them separately. And we ended up uh, waxing the caps different to identify the different um, barrel that the, the um, beer came from. And um, they make a great set because, you know, if you have a, a beer connoisseur, friend, uncle, brother-in-law or whoever that, you know, loves you know, very unique beers, they – um, they, they are just perfect for like showcasing what the same beer can taste like, but in different barrels. <laughs> so. Yeah. They, uh, they showed up down at the three bears here in Kenai and, uh, I hit it hard, picked up, like you say, several of them. So they're, uh, they're down in my cellar right now. Ah, after I, after I tried some, I tried one of each and the others are <laughs> down in the cellar. It- so it, it, it's hard sometimes to sell our stuff because it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but so, that's definitely one to enjoy with a friend. I think that came in around 13 ABV and, and yeah, uh, it's pretty potent. But it, it's potent, but it's so smooth too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the, the, the characteristics there of just kind of really don't make it, uh, um, it, it's not hot at all. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> so, it's very drinkable as I recall. Yeah. I always say enjoy with a friend. (laughs) So anything else you want to tell everybody about? Well, you know, um, we're staying busy here. Um, We're definitely looking for people to help us on, on, on our crew. So if you've got people who are interested in becoming brewers or um, also working in the hospitality industry, we got our, our kitchen as well opening up. So those folks out there that would like to join a team, certainly we'd be uh, willing to hear from them. 
You heard it, folks. If you're looking for a job in Anchorage, there's jobs available. Well, hey, Dana, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Really do appreciate it. And uh, look forward to getting up there for the Oktoberfest. And uh, you continue to enjoy your summer. Best of luck with the kitchen. Look forward to trying the food. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I look forward to seeing you up here. All right. Thanks again. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Tune in on Sundays from 7 to 9, where I, Josie Oliva, will be your host for Pickled Beats, a radio show that explores obscure subgenres and oddly specific themes, right here on Pickle Hill Radio, KDLL. The Alaska Division of Elections is looking for poll workers and bilingual assistance poll workers for the upcoming August 16th elections. You can get paid to serve your community and the division will teach you everything you need to know to do the job. You must be at least 18 years old, a registered voter, and willing to remain nonpartisan on election day. Go to elections.alaska.gov and click election workers to apply. This message brought to you by the State of Alaska Division of Elections. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. In this month's feature, let's talk about home brewing in America. Home brewing has a long and rich history in our country. During colonial days, brewing was a basic activity which took place on just about every farm in America. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, all the founding fathers were brewers. Washington not only had a brewery at Mount Vernon, eventually he had a commercial distillery. We even have one of his beer recipes written in his own hand. There is a letter from Thomas Jefferson in which he complains about not being able to bottle his latest batch of homebrew because his friends have not been prompt about returning the empty bottles from a previous batch. When he was president, James Madison thought beer so much healthier for the general public than the very plentiful rum that he actually proposed creating a national brewery to operate alongside the National Bank. Alaska, too, has a long history of home brewing and home distilling, dating back many years to well before the Klondike Gold Rush. Legend has it that an army deserter taught the Klingit how to produce their infamous hoochinoo or hooch, a sort of homemade rum shortly after Alaska became a U.S. territory. Northern homebrewers, like homebrewers everywhere, experimented with whatever ingredients were locally available. At various times, they used barley, potatoes, Irish moss, champagne yeast, licorice, cinnamon, nutmeg, orange zest, hazelnuts, Epsom salts, honey, molasses, and oatmeal in an attempt to produce something that was both alcoholic and tasty. However, at least for the Stampeders, it seems taste must have been almost an afterthought. Here is how Tapp and Adney described one homebrewing process in his 1900 book, The Klondike Stampede. Quote, Whenever whiskey runs short, the Yukoner falls back on a villainous decoction made of sourdough or dough and brown sugar or sugar alone and known as hoochinoo or hooch. The still is made of coal oil cans, the worms of pieces of india rubber boot tops cemented together. 
This crude still is heated over an ordinary Yukon stove. The liquor obtained is clear white and is flavored with blueberries or dried peaches to suit the taste. It must be very bad, for the manufacturer is forbidden by law. They say it will drive a man crazy. Gold Rush area hooch must have been formidable indeed. With the growing urbanization and industrialization of the U.S. during the latter part of the 19th century and the rise of large nationwide breweries such as Anheuser-Busch, Paps, and Schlitz, homebrewing became less prevalent. However, the coming of Prohibition in 1921 brought homebrewing back with a vengeance. During the 13 years of Prohibition, brewing your own beer at home again became a very popular, if illegal, activity. Compared to distilled spirits or even wine, beer was bulky and perishable. It was much easier and more profitable to smuggle in a load of Canadian whiskey than to bring in kegs or bottles of beer. Illegal breweries on a commercial scale could only exist in places like Al Capone, Chicago, which was large enough and corrupt enough to conceal them. In most of the rest of the country, it simply made more economic sense to operate an illicit still and sell bottles of strong spirits than to brew and sell illegal beer. Homebrewed beer in the 1920s was something made to be consumed at home with family and friends, just as it is today. With the end of Prohibition in 1933, homebrewing was again legal, sort of. Due to a typographical error, when the bill to re-legalize the homebrewing of wine and beer was passed, the and beer was left out. Because of this typo, the homebrewing of beer remained technically illegal under federal law. And it stayed illegal for another 45 years until a fellow named Charlie Papazian entered the picture. Papazian was a nuclear engineer by training and a homebrewing aficionado. In 1978, he read Michael Jackson's book, The World Guide to Beer, describing many exciting beer styles which were brewed overseas, but not in the U.S. It inspired him to work to have the home brewing of beer made legal on the federal level. He succeeded in October 1978. In December 1978, he founded the American Homebrewers Association and Zimmergy Magazine. Later, he founded the Great American Beer Festival and the Brewers Association. He wrote one of the most successful books on brewing your own beer, The Complete Joy of Homebrewing, which introduced countless individuals, including yours truly, to the hobby. Papazian retired on January 23, 2019, on his 70th birthday, after 40 years of working to promote both craft beer and homebrewing. He truly earned his nickname as the Johnny Appleseed of homebrewing. By having homebrewing formally legalized, Papazian allowed homebrewers to come out of the shadows and become an organized community. Magazines began to be published and information exchanged. Clubs could formally organize and advertise for new members. Businesses began to create and market products specifically for homebrewers, making it easier for newcomers to the hobby to get started. When I first began homebrewing over 30 years ago, both supplies and information were difficult to come by. Many things were passed along by word of mouth or learned through painful trial and error. Today, there is a truly staggering amount of information simply a few mouse clicks away. It's been estimated that today there are over 1 million American homebrewers. 
There has been a great side benefit of this explosion of American home brewers. This movement supplied the foot soldiers for the American craft beer revolution, which has happened in the last four decades. The vast majority of the craft brewers who set up shop during the 1980s and 90s started out as home brewers. Even today, home brewing is still the most prevalent path by which someone becomes a commercial brewer, though the percentages are dropping as more and more schools in the U.S. offer formal brewing science degrees. In many ways, we have home brewing to thank for the over 9,000 American craft breweries of today. After all, when home brewing was legalized, there were less than 50 breweries of any kind in the entire country. So why homebrew? Well, on that subject, I can only speak for myself. I have several reasons. First, actually doing something yourself gives you a much greater understanding of the processes involved. My understanding of beer and appreciation for it has certainly been enhanced by my experiences brewing it myself. Second, back in 1989 when I started brewing, we lacked the wide variety of local breweries and styles to choose from. Often, if you wanted to know what a good Belgian Saison or British bitter tasted like, you had only two options, fly to Europe or brew one yourself. In the world in which we now live, with many more beers are available, this is less of a problem. But even today, there are certain rare, commercially extinct styles which you simply can't purchase. Just as it was decades ago, the only way to obtain those beer styles is to make them yourself. While some of the reasons I became a home brewer have been overcome by events, one reason remains just as strong today as it did 30 years ago. Beer has always been a social beverage, best consumed with friends. Sharing your home brew with other brewers and sampling what they have produced adds a whole new dimension to the experience of consuming beer. I've enjoyed doing so in many different clubs around the country and here in Alaska. It's the reason I founded the Kenai Peninsula Brewing and Tasting Society back in 2010 and the reason I still attend its meetings every month. Beer consumed with friends just tastes better. It's as simple as that. So if all this has inspired you to consider becoming a home brewer, I'd strongly encourage you to give it a shot. If you'd like to try before you buy, why not come to a meeting of the local club and check things out? You could well find yourself invited to observe or participate in a member's brew day, which will give you a much better feel for exactly what being a home brewer entails. If you're interested, we meet at 6.30 p.m. on the first Thursday of every month at the Shriners Hall on West Poppy Lane off K Beach Road. In fact, our next meeting will be this Thursday, August 4th. Why not stop by and check us out? Who knows, you might get hooked on home brewing just like I was. And if not, you'll still get to taste some great beer. Up next, we'll have an interview with Matt Barnaby of Barnaby Brewing in Juneau, Alaska. This is KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldata. Hi, this is Chef Steve Horn inviting you to join me for the reopening of the Blues Cafe Monday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM starting January 17, 2022. New music, old music, my favorites, your favorites, and any music that is good for the body, mind, and soul. Make your reservations to join me on Monday evenings at the Blues Cafe. Thank you. I'm Dan. And I'm Kelly. We're DOT Project Engineers. We work on Alaska's roads. Now that you're getting back on the roads, please slow down in work zones. 
so I can give my welcome home committee my monster hugs. So I can play ball with my boys. So I can make my daughter's tea party. I can teach my kids to fish. So I can tell my wife I love her. Please drive safely through work zones. Our families depend on it. This message is brought to you by the Alaska Department of Transportation and Public Facilities. Matt Barnaby, the owner of Barnaby Brewing in Juneau. Hello, Matt. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, uh, doing well. Hey, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. So you have had a, what's the phrase I want, quite a challenging run in your brewing career there. First you got started, then you had a bad fire that closed you for, what, a year and a half, something like that? What, longer? Um, yeah, right around that area. Yeah, about a year and a half. So then you get reopened and everything's good. And then you get the hammer of COVID dropped on you like on everybody else. So how are you doing today? Yeah, I mean, uh, things are definitely looking up. Um, you know, we've got a pretty full cruise season this year. Uh, we're open seven days a week. Uh, not quite pre-COVID numbers, but uh, we're getting close there. And, uh, yeah, just working our way through the summer. So for those people who haven't uh, visited your place, why don't you describe what, what your setup is like? You know, how many taps do you have? How many uh, how many people can you seat? You know, those sorts of things. Sure, yeah. So we're in a building uh, originally housed the uh, steam laundry back in the mining days. Uh, old historic building, over 100 years old. Uh, we're sort of uh, – our space is kind of an L-shape. So when you first walk in – is our seating area. Uh, I think we've got 50 seats or so there. Uh, and then we have our cooler, which we have 12 taps. We typically have 11 beers, 10 to 11 beers. And then with those open taps, we uh, we have some non-alcoholic options. Uh, and then kind of around the corner or the short end of the L there is our brewing space. Uh, we operate on a three-barrel brew system with about uh, 12, 18 barrels of fermentation uh, space. And, uh, yeah, located in the heart of downtown, right behind City Hall. Well, three-barrel system, that must keep you busy. Yeah, I, uh, all my tanks are full right now, and I'm uh, biting at the bit to get some empty so I can brew again. So, yeah. So are you, uh, do you distribute your stuff anywhere around uh, Juneau, or are you strictly uh, there at uh, the brewery? Yeah, so most of our sales does uh, come to the brewery itself. Uh, we do have a couple of local restaurants that we uh, distribute to. So like the tram at the top of the, the mountain here in town has got us on top, uh, Crab Shack, uh, V Cellar Door. And then uh, we have a vendor out of Anchorage, the Tent City Tap House. I was going to say, I thought I'd seen up. your stuff on a Tent City. I've had, had some of your stuff there. So good, good. Yeah. Making it to the big town. So um yeah so uh tell us a little bit about your uh, you know your brewing philosophy what kind of beers do you favor are you a belgian guy british guy german guy what do you like to what do you like to brew yeah so we brew a little bit of everything but personally a uh, big fan of the abv beers uh, i like to go big on the alcohol and kind of push the limits there uh, we just released uh not just but a couple months ago we released our five-year anniversary beer which is a stout that we um Got to just under 18% ABV. Wow. Uh, just shy of 18. Pretty sure nobody's uh, really contested it so far, but pretty sure it's the strongest naturally fermented beer in Alaska. And then right behind that, we've got a couple other beers that, uh, assuming everything goes as planned, should be over 20%. Uh, 
so my personal sort of fun brewing is that. And then the other sort of thing that we're kind of known for is incorporating local ingredients, whether that's through spruce tips, um, other forageable items. Um, we smoke our own grain using alder, sort of, sort of similar to what we would do with salmon. So, yeah. What kind of uh, tricks are you using to brew such a high ABV? Are you, uh, I'm sure you're adding a ton of yeast. You're rousing it. You're uh, adding secondary yeast with, uh, you know, uh, later on the fermentation. What's your, what, what kind of tricks are you using? Yeah, so we do all of the above. <laughs> um, you know, there's sort of three big things that kind of impact yeast in the fermentation. Uh, osmotic pressure being one of them. So how much sugar is in the wort? Uh, to combat that, we actually do uh, sugar and malt additions throughout fermentation. And then what else? Uh, we got CO2, which can make uh, the beer acidic. And so we actually use a technique that's often seen in uh, mead manufacturing where we will actually recirculate the wort uh, to drive off the CO2. Okay. Uh, and then we do uh, some additional yeast uh, additions. Wow. Are you uh, looking at, uh, I mean, you're talking stouts. Are you looking at maybe making a, a, a barley wine for the barley wine competition? Yeah, so we actually have a barley wine on tap right now. Um, not quite as big as, as maybe some of the stouts that we've done. Um, but, yeah, we got a barley wine that we've been aging for a couple months now. And then I've got some interesting big ABV stuff uh, in the future, but. That's all still super R&D right now. Okay. But I'm thinking you're you're going to enter something uh, in January then for the... the uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of businesses in Juneau, we're, uh, we're just focusing on getting through the summer, and then we'll look at the uh, winter uh, when that comes up. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, likely. Likely we'll have something up there in, in January. I mean, if that's going to be your specialty, you might as well might as well go up and roll with the big boys. Right. Well, cool. What else, you'll besides ABV, big ABV beers, what else do you like to brew? Uh, yeah, like I said, uh, local ingredients. So we do quite a bit with spruce tips, um, a lot of fruited uh, beers. So um, some of our more popular stuff right now is we've got like a, I'm calling it a fruit punch goza, but we've got several varieties of fruit in that. I started dabbling with some yeast experimentation. Omega Yeast has some, some pretty cool products that they're putting out right now. Um, and so we've been experimenting with that and had really good results. Uh, yeast is sort of designed to complement IPAs, so we've been doing a lot of that. Uh, I wouldn't call that my favorite style of the brew, but it uh, sells pretty well and uh, does well with this yeast that we've been playing with. Yeah, you kind of we kind of have to burn IPA these days. That's just yeah. just the way it is. The, ju- the juicier, the better. <laughs> yeah. I can remember when we used to work hard to try and make our beers be clear. Oh, right, when, clear uh, and bitter. Yeah, Those now we want them. Days. Now we want them to look like orange juice and taste like orange juice. So, right. But oh well, I, I guess I sound like an old man yelling for the kids to get off my lawn. <laughs> um, so, what do you think about SB nine passing? You got any uh, plans to take advantage of it in any way? Yeah, I mean. So I haven't been following it super close. Uh, I know that there's some time before anything really yeah. takes place, and so I'm kind of letting the January 2024 settle. But so, yeah, I mean, uh, depending on what's available, I mean, absolutely, we're going to take advantage of of any new opportunities that might present themselves. Um, but like I said, I haven't 
I mean, I early on I was following it very close, and then uh, as time went on, it it sort of got exhausting trying to keep up with it, and um, because we have a little bit of time before it takes place anyways i'm i'm sort of letting the dust settle a little bit yeah well 10 years of, of getting it through the legislature did did tend to kind of uh uh get uh that was quite a while quite a while of right. uh, trying to push it through but uh yeah well you guys are not you don't have any plans there to have any sort of food or kitchen or anything like that right because you're space, uh, space right constrained now. yeah so yeah, there that's... would be no advantage or no reason for you to try and take advantage of getting a restaurant eating place license or anything like that. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, uh, space and staff, right. Two, two things that are hard to find in Juno. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that was going to be my next question. Have you got any, any kind of plans to expand, you know, by relocating, uh, into a bigger space or, are you, you know, planning to be where you are for the foreseeable future? I don't know what, you know, have you got space for more tankage or are you pretty much uh, chock-a-block now? Yeah, we've got a little bit more space. We'd have to get a little creative to use it. Um, we don't have any immediate plans right now. Like I said, we're still sort of waiting to see what post-COVID looks like uh, before we make any kind of big uh, financial plans or anything like that. So, yeah, right now we're, we're in our space. Uh, a lot of labor involved with keeping up with it but um you know we're managing uh, for the most part we have our taps full most of the time so uh yeah no plans of expansion at this point uh, speaking of labor how are you doing in the uh post-covid uh labor shortage are you having any trouble with uh, getting staff in are you been able to hang on to good people where do you stand yeah uh like most people we're we're I, we're definitely struggling to find uh, folks, especially uh, reliable folks that we think kind of fit what we do. Um, so, yeah, this summer we've had to kind of patchwork it together. Matter of fact, our hours are sort of um, derived on the ability to staff. Um, a couple times so far this summer we've had to kind of delay openings and things like that to um, work around our staff schedule. Yeah, that seems to be a universal situation. Almost everybody is uh... – Short staff to some extent. Yeah, I always tell folks, my goal is to never work the tap room, but I find myself pouring a lot of beers these days, so, yeah. So what about uh, any upcoming uh, festivals you guys planning to be at? Uh, There's the Capital Brew Fest that's coming up there in September, right? Any others that you're planning to make? Yeah, so, well, I kind of want to take a step back and mention we're talking about big beers sort of being my specialty. We recently uh, competed in the U.S. Open, ah, okay. which uh, three of our beers medaled at. Excellent. And uh, two of them were over 10% beers, and then the other one was a stout. So our anniversary beer, that 18%er, uh, got a bronze medal. We got a bronze medal for our uh, tropical stout, and then a gold medal for our uh, Scottish Wee Heavy. Oh, so, excellent. Uh, I thought I'd, I'd mention that. Yeah, I'd love to taste your wee heavy. I'm a sucker for that style. So that's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We've actually this is the second year in a row that we've put into this competition. Last year, uh, it got a silver medal, and then this year gold. So hmm. it was kind of <laughs> interesting to see that progression uh, yeah. with that beer. Well, that's that's what um, you want to see. You should always be getting better. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, but as far as festivals go, we are actually currently ramping up. Uh, to pour at the Great American Beer Fest again this year in Denver. Uh, the event took 
what, two, three year hiatus due to COVID. Right. Uh, but this is the first year back. I'm actually, that's what I'm brewing right now is our beers for the great American beer fest. Uh, we always go down there. We have a great time. Um, so we're looking forward to that trip and that's beginning of October. Uh, we have the festival here in Juneau, uh, put on by the Rotary Club, which we'll be participating in. Uh, and then calendars open, uh, kind of like I mentioned before earlier, uh, like a lot of businesses in Juneau, we're, we're focus is to get through summer. And then once uh, we get through summer, then we'll open up the calendar and, and look at our winter travel plans. Well, hey, Matt, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. Really do appreciate it and look forward to hopefully seeing you at some of the fests up here and either in Anchorage or here on the Kenai. And uh, good luck at the Great American Beer Festival. Bring us back a medal, man. Awesome. Thank you. All righty. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell. We'll be right back for our final segment. It's summertime, gardeners, and what better place to talk gardening than growing a greener Kenai? From May through September, Growing a Greener Kenai will broadcast live at 11 a.m. on KDLL 91.9 on the first and third Saturday of the month. You can email us at growingagreenerkenai at kdll.org or give us a call at 907-283-8414 with your questions or to just talk gardening. KDLL, keeping it green on the Kenai. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. Let's talk pumpkin beers. I don't know that there's a beer more pathologically, frequently, and substantively misunderstood than pumpkin beer. I'm not talking about the perennial debate over when it's too early for pumpkin beer to hit the taps and shells. No, I'm talking about the general lack of light shown on the origins of pumpkin beer and how it has evolved along with craft beer movement. Pumpkin beer has a long history, but with each generation, it retains the name while changing what we should expect actually when we take our first sip. Today, I'm going to discuss where pumpkin beer came from, how it got here, and where it's going. As American as apple pie, the saying goes, but it could just as easily have been as American as pumpkin pie. To your average colonists in North America in the 17th and 18th centuries, pumpkin products of all kinds, pies, mashes, breads, beers, you name it, were ubiquitous. Why? Because there was a veritable unending supply of the things. Pumpkins grow like weeds, wandering and weaving and wending, and it's no wonder that in an otherwise resource-strapped place like colonial America that pumpkins found their way into everything. As one popular saying went, quote, We have pumpkin at morning, pumpkin at noon. If not for pumpkin, we should be undone. This included, from the earliest days of the colonies, pumpkin beer. The beer was derived from the mashed and fermented pulp of pumpkin and probably not much else. Colonists had limited access to wheat and barley, and those were generally used for bread flour with oats and other cereal grains used in cooking and for livestock feed. But pumpkins they had in abundance, and while contemporary recipes are scarce, there are frequent mentions of pumpkin and other adjunct ales in the writings and records of the time. Pumpkins were not used for their flavor. They were simply a source of starch converted into fermentable sugars, just as with malted barley and other adjuncts. Apples, pears, squash, corn, 
and other local agricultural products were also used as a source of fermentable sugars. But pumpkin stood out in its terms of availability and its ability to produce, with some age, a fairly clean finished beer. While it would not have been unheard of to add spices and hops to pumpkin beer, there do not appear to have been any go-to flavoring additions. You might say that this was a rustic farmhouse product. Besides pumpkins, spruce tips, ginger, molasses, even ground ivy were added to the ad hoc recipes brewed by our colonial forebears. The popularity of pumpkin beer faded through the decades, however. No one has ever offered a specific reason for this shift other than the most obvious one. As agriculture developed in the United States and cereal grains became more readily available, the necessity of using pumpkins as starchy source material fell away. We can also assume that waves of immigrating British, German, and Czech brewers, accustomed to working with traditional brewing grains, would have had no particular reason to make use of the unfamiliar New World pumpkin. Whatever the reason, pumpkin beers had all but disappeared from the American brewing landscape until the 1980s. Necessity may be the mother of invention, but curious brewers are probably its quirky aunt. It is thanks to one such brewer that pumpkin beer re-entered the national drinking scene. In 1985, Bill Owens was brewing and selling beer at one of the first outposts of craft beer movement, Buffalo Bill's Brewery in Hayward, California. Owens had run across a recipe for pumpkin beer in the writings of George Washington, in which Washington described the brewing operation at Mount Vernon. Intrigued, he jumped in with both feet, ordering seeds and growing his own pumpkins used in the early test batches. Roasted and then mashed in with a version of Bill's Amber Ale, the pumpkin added nothing much to the taste of the finished beer. It's at this moment that expectation met up with perception and led to innovation. When we think of pumpkin flavor, we are actually not thinking of the flavor of pumpkin. We're thinking of the flavor of pumpkin pie, which is driven not by the pumpkin, which is largely flavorless, but by cinnamon, clove, and other spices. Bill and other brewers quickly focused more on the spice blend used in pumpkin beers and pretty much abandoned altogether the use of pumpkins in their pumpkin beers. With a rich malt backbone and restrained hop character supplemented by spice additions, Pumpkin beer began to define itself as a distinct fall seasonal style, even without the pumpkins. Today, the Brewers Association style guidelines differentiate between pumpkin slash squash beer, which is brewed with pumpkin and without spicing, and pumpkin spice beer, which may or may not contain pumpkin, but does use spices to create an evocative flavor profile. The Beer Judge Certification Program guidelines lay out the rough parameters of an autumn seasonal beer, which captures both. For professionals and homebrewers, pumpkin beer is as well known as it is derided for pushing its way onto shelves and taps too early each year. Brewers and drinkers alike get bored easily, so although there are still any number of mid-strength amber ales with pumpkin spices on the market, they're hardly alone. New and exotic variations on the pumpkin beer are now seasonal favorites. The original Buffalo Bills Pumpkin Ale is still brewed and sold and is joined by nationally distributed versions in the same vein. Dogfish Head's Pumpkin Ale comes to mind. Looking to pumpkin ales brewed in Alaska, Midnight Sun has two justly famed offerings. The first is Trickster, a beer brewed with pumpkin spices, 
allspice, ginger, and black pepper, then fermented with a Belgian yeast. At 7% ABV and 22 IBUs, it's their take on a traditional pumpkin spice beer. Midnight Sun's second pumpkin brew is named Treat, which is an anagram for the Royal Eccentric Ale Treatment. This beer is an imperial chocolate pumpkin porter, brewed with spices, cocoa nibs, and pumpkin. Darker and heavier than its brother Trickster, it weighs in at 7.8 alcohol by volume and 30 IBUs. Speaking of pumpkin porters, Alaskan Brewing used to produce one as part of its pilot series, but it has been retired. Smaller breweries around the state also produce pumpkin beers this time of year. Check with your local craft brewery to see what it might be releasing soon. Whether you love them or hate them, perhaps the most remarkable thing about pumpkin beer is that in them we can clearly see the connection between the various pumpkin beers of today and their forebearers in the 17th and 18th centuries. Brewers in the 21st century not only appreciate and recognize the brew-with-what-you've-got-handy ethos, they embrace it heartily. Pumpkin beer is, quietly, an exemplar of exactly what we want to see in craft beer. The use of local and sustainable ingredients, creative recipe design, and a product that is both flavorful and fuels our nostalgia and whimsy. Well, that's it for this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. This month's closing quote is from that great American philosopher, W.C. Fields. Everyone needs something to believe in. I believe I'll have another beer. Until next month, cheers. Yeah.